Welcome to Practically Healthy by Dr. Molina, where each week I interview a really interesting expert and we talk through what you should do, what you can do, and what you will do. If you're enjoying this content, please subscribe, please comment on the podcast, hit like, tell your friends so I can keep producing more great content for you. So this week I am really, really excited about uh, my guest because she is as much of an expert, if not more so than I am on uh, nutrition and weight loss. So it's going to be a fascinating conversation and her new book, Hungry for More, Stories and Science to Inspire Weight Loss from the Inside Out. I started reading excerpts of it last night and I found it incredibly moving. And I think you're going to learn a tremendous amount today. So Dr. Adrian Udim, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule. I know you're a busy working mom like me to uh, come on the podcast and inspire us with your wisdom. Thanks, Melina. It's so nice to be here. Nice to be with you. Yeah, it's fun. We usually we hang out at the obesity meetings together and, and have a little fun and, and uh, try to learn as much as possible. So uh, Dr. Udim is also board certified in obesity medicine and nutrition, as I am in nutrition. Um, but let's jump right into the book because uh, this has been a labor of love for you, and but it took a bit of a pivot uh, I, with reading the prologue with the pandemic. So let's jump right in. Tell us about that. What was, how did the book start off in your mind and how did it change when the pandemic started? Yeah, it truly was a, a labor of love and, um, really like a love letter to myself and to my patients, quite frankly. Um, as you know, you know, our, our medical arsenal for obesity and for weight loss really consists of, medications and dietary plans that help suppress or control hunger, controlling people's hunger so that they can eat less and ultimately lose weight. And that's what I practiced and do practice. I'm a firm believer as you are of evidence-based strategies. But you know, over the years, as I would speak to patients um, and I was prescribing my, my drugs on my prescription pad, it became aware to me in each and every encounter that there was an underlying hunger that was present, an emotional hunger, a spiritual hunger. And it occurred to me that perhaps this hunger is not um, meant to be suppressed. This hunger is a sign. It's a indication. It is a invitation to kind of lean in and um, explore what this hunger is representing. And that came to be, uh, or that realization really came to be the chapters of the book where I describe 40 some odd emotional, spiritual hungers that by the way, are universal to everybody. You know, when you start talking to people and you probably have the same experience or any of your listeners who are in the in the position of hearing people share their stories, you're become aware of the patterns. These stories come up again and again and again. And when you hear the commonality, the universality of the experience, it's a blessing that we have. It's a privilege that we have. And I really felt that it was necessary for people out there to know how common th these experiences and these hungers are. 
Yeah, I think it's so interesting. I, I just want to explain to the listener too, because, and, and maybe you can explain this to me because to me, this really isn't talking necessarily about the hunger, you know, that we feel. I know you make the analogy in the book that, you know, emotional stress and, and mood disorders can lead to actual the sensation of physical hunger through hormonal regulation and that sort of thing. But this was really, to me, so much deeper than that. I mean, when you look at the chapters, you know, and I, I was really trying to assess myself last night too, as I was reading this, but hungry for perfection, hungry for self-love, hungry for soothing, hungry for routine, abundance, nature, belonging, self-acceptance, ritual, possibility, motivation, understanding. There's, it, it is, it's so much deeper. It's, I admire you so much for doing this because I've gone in such a different direction. I feel like in my path lately, it's all about, genetics and mechanics and sedentary behavior and the microbiome and biology. And you've really gone so much deeper than that with this book. So, so talk a little bit about how that came about and how you think this can help people even more. I mean, it's both, right? I mean, I really am a firm believer in, in understanding all of it. And my approach is to weight loss um, is actionable. And I think that's the medications, the microbiome, the understanding of the science um, and compassionate, which is this other side of the emotional and the spiritual experience. And by the way, as you mentioned, there's science there too, right? And so I talk about that in every single chapter, why these emotional hungers uh, come to be, why they do are experienced as a physiologic hunger. There's a science behind that. And I think it's important to highlight that because we have so much shame about emotional eating or emotions that result in a desire to soothe. And we have this image often when we say emotional eating of some sappy girl who just got dumped by her boyfriend sitting with a pint of Ben and Jerry's, right? What's wrong with that? <laughs> there ain't nothing wrong with that, Dr. Molina. But the reality is that it doesn't have to be that kind of emotion. And the pandemic did show us that. Um, it can be stress. It can be boredom. It can be restlessness. It can be agitation. I mean, really kind of mundane and common sensations that come about as a, as a hunger, or if you don't want to think of it that way, as an itch, right? It's like this thing that's kind of itching you and it and it seeks to be soothed. So what do we do? Well, some of us might light up a cigarette or open a bottle of wine, but I tell my patients, if you're a goody two-shoes, then you're going to go into the pantry, right? You're going to run into the pantry. You're going to grab something to try and soothe that sensation. What I suggest in this book is lean into that. Don't suppress it. Don't shame it listen to it. What is it that you want in that moment? When you get up and you're like itching for something, you're hungry for something, what is it you're really hungry for? And again, sometimes it's something so simple, like my desk is hugely cluttered, right? And it's agitating. Um, I am hungry for respite or calm or serenity. 
give yourself that. Or you've been cooped up in front of your Zoom camera for eight hours in a row and your hunger is a, a breath of fresh air. Get out and go for a 10 minute walk, right? Or maybe you are feeling um, disconnected and, and you need some connection. You need a sense of belonging. Pick up the phone and, and call your bestie and have a conversation, right? But if we don't really dial into that hunger, it's very easy to be like, I'm itching for something. And then you walk into the pantry and grab a thing that, that by the way, doesn't serve you in the end, right? That itch is still there. Um, so I, I firmly believe that if we can, number one, take away the stigma around our unmet psychological needs, there is nothing wrong with needing the things that we need. And then number two, really dialing in and giving ourselves that thing, then we give ourselves an opportunity to be truly fulfilled, right? To really uh, fulfill that missing void. Yeah, it's it's um, it's it's very thought provoking. I, I really, I strongly encourage any listener who any of this resonates with to get this book, Hungry for More, because I think you will, I mean, I only read the first chapter and I was already analyzing, you know, my, what role, if, if I was a perfectionist, which I'm not sure I am as much as you, um, after reading the chapter, but, and, and what role that had. And it's, it's not just, I mean, this is really more of a mental health book in my, in in my opinion, and and just kind of, and I, I th- this is so important for setting yourself up for success. I mean, what are some of the kind of just give us a few of the stories that that kind of resonated with you the most, and and maybe that the patient was successful in 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 this first step of, of putting themselves in a place to succeed. I, I, I think you and I both know that, you know, readiness is, you can have the best diet plan, the best pills, the best microbiome, perfect, you know, knowledge of genetics and whatever. Um, but the readiness is really essential. So just so the readers really understand, um, give us some of your, you know, your favorites as you were going through this. Well, I mean, I want to start with this kind of um, broader piece, which is, you know, you bring up the perfectionism chapter, and I I made that first because it is such a common theme. This is not about labeling ourselves and saying we're perfectionists or not. And even the psychological literature is confused as to whether perfectionism is truly a trait or not. Frankly, it doesn't matter. But I would argue that almost all of us in any role of leadership have some aspects of perfectionism. And by leadership, I don't even mean being, uh, you know, the president or a physician or a lawyer, but if you're a mother and you're the leader of the household, I suggest that, or I suspect there is some level of perfectionism in how you're parenting, right? And so we all have these themes, um, maybe some stronger than others. But taking the example of perfectionism, 
perfection by definition is a standard that is unattainable. Like we tell our children, there's no such thing as perfect, but really think about that. There really is no such thing as perfect. And yet we strive for that perfectionism. How do we do that? Oh, we don't get on the treadmill if we only have 15 minutes because perfect means 30 minutes a day. Um, we don't uh, forgo the dessert that we could forgo because, oh, we already had the hamburger and fries and we screwed up for the day, right? And so if I can't be perfect, I might as well throw in the towel and have uh, the ice cream or whatever as well, right? Um, there's so many examples, even in our like, you know, the way we eat and in our lifestyles where if we can't have perfect, we, we abdicate the effort, we forgo the effort. And so the literature shows that when you strive for perfection, this unattainable goal, you are actually setting yourself up for failure you think you're setting yourself up for success because it's perfect, but the reality is that you're setting yourself up for failure and you self-sabotage. And so people who have perfectionist or more perfectionist tendencies actually fail more in the end, which is so ironic, right? But it is the truth if you believe the literature. But what is the antidote to that? The antidote to perfection is um, self-compassion. Because in those imperfect moments, in those limitations, in those times where we make mistakes, which by human, by being human, by definition, we are flawed, right? No one ever gets what they want all the time, does what they want all the time, acts how they would have wanted to act all the time. We are by definition flawed. So what can we do in that moment? Chances are most of us berate ourselves, right? Damn it, you effed up again. <laughs> right? Why did I do this? Or why did I say that thing? You like replay that terrible conversation where you said something over and over and over again. But the, the alternative to that is just holding yourself with compassion. Like, yeah, that really sucked. Um, and I don't have to make it worse by um, berating myself. Let me just accept that I'm human, that I'm imperfect, that I make mistakes. And it's from that place of self-compassion that you kind of can take the breath of uh, air and allow yourself to pick yourself up, dust yourself off and, per and proceed in the effort. When you're badgering yourself, there's no energy left to proceed. And so you are gonna sabotage. Whereas self-compassion is actually the way forward, the way in which you can gather yourself back up and get back in the game. Um, and so that's just one, ex you know, one example. Yeah, no, I love that. And it's kind of, that was one of my questions is how do we, how do you act? How do you display self-compassion? So, and again, you know, that it's funny because that's one of the reasons I called my podcast practically healthy because a, I'm looking for practical tips, but B, I don't want you to feel like you have to be perfectly healthy. I feel like social media and many experts, we, we portray ourselves as, as like we do everything perfectly and, 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 but that's not the reality. If you can get practically there, that's, you know, a really good sign. But I was, I mean, so if we're giving our listeners some, some really practical tools for somebody who's just, I can tell you, this is something that 
I struggle with tremendously. I beat myself up. I, I, as I said, I'm not a perfectionist, but I beat myself up constantly for things that I do. And I, I just, how do you, how do you just stop that cycle? Is there like a, a technique or a tool or, you know, I know a lot of my patients um, are like that. And, and so what, what can we do? Cause it doesn't seem if it's, again, you talk about patterns and repeating over and over. I've been doing this for 51 years. Absolutely. Um, how so do I stop? This. So let me say this number one. Um, and I say this to my patients, this is the human condition. I do it. You do it. Michelle Obama does it. Beyonce does it. Okay. We all do it. Um, the science says that we have 60 to 70,000 thoughts a day and that 60% of those thoughts are negative. Holy cow, right? Like you do the math. So the first point is, this is what we do, right? Don't feel like you are a unicorn because you are doing it. And that common humanity piece is actually one of the uh, components of self-compassion. Because if you can see the common humanity about it, if in that moment you can say, hey, this is not just me, this is, you know, Michelle Obama and Beyonce, you're like, phew, right? That, that in and it of itself is giving you a, a feeling of self-compassion. The second thing I'll say is that like everything else, like, you know, healthy eating, it isn't a destination. It's not like you reach a point at age 52 where you're like, well, thank God I fixed that one, <laughs> right? This is like a work in progress. This is something that you have, that we have to be mindful and intentional about every damn day until the day you die. And there are days where it feels really good and we have lots of wins and there's days where it feels really hard and we don't. And that is also part of the human condition. And again, in and of itself, a, a form of self-compassion when you remind yourself, right? That, that you can't be perfect in this effort either. So let's back up and talk about how do you even get there? The first step is just awareness. Because I would say many people um, might catch one or two of the times that they've said negative things to themselves. But if you really wake up with the intention of, I'm going to really just be aware, not judgmental, I'm not going to try and change anything about myself. I'm just going to be aware of how I do this. I would argue that the moment you open your eyes, you've already started. The moment you've picked up the phone and opened up your email and remembered that you know, you forgot to do something yesterday, or you went on to your social media and saw what somebody else is doing, you've already started. The moment you walk into your bathroom and take off your clothes to get into the shower, you've already started. How many times a day do we um, self-deprecate that we're not even aware? And so the practical tip here is become aware, right? Like just try and in a non-judgmental way, because then if you go judging yourself and saying, ah, I did it again, it's like more of the same, just be aware of it, right? And in that moment, that awareness is an aha moment. 
And then you have the opportunity to change the narrative to say, you know, it's okay, right? Like I, I didn't do my best, but I can forgive myself in this moment and acknowledge that I'm human just like everybody else and move on. And the studies show actually that that kind of intentional mindfulness really causes changes over time in your behaviors in a very concrete way in the brain. So the brain in a, um, in a phenomena that is called neuroplasticity, which means that basically your neurons or brain cells change, the connections between your neurons or brain cells actually change when you start adopting different behaviors. So you kind of create those grooves or pathways in your brain so that over time, you're never gonna be, I think, free of it, but over time, we are less likely to automatically fall into that habitual way of thinking. Do you recommend, I'm thinking, one of the things that I do with my patients, because I feel like sometimes, um, they come into the office and it's like a confessional, you know, bless me, Father, for I have sinned this week, I ate this and this and this. And I'm like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. I need you to focus first on the positives. Tell me what you did well this week. As you're talking, I'm wondering whether, you know, like even for me personally, you know, kind of documenting that negative thought process or that self-criticism and and spinning it around like yes you know maybe I I'm not you know quite as muscular as I would want to but hey for a 51 year old like but I feel like writing what I tell my patients is if you write down the positives they're going to accumulate over time because a lot of times people forget what they've done well and they just perseverate on the negative. I'm wondering if there's a way with journaling to kind of in one column, write down all your negative thoughts and then how you can make them work for you or redirect them to something positive. Is that something that you do with patients? It's funny that it's, it, it's, I'm glad that you brought it up. And actually, one of the questions I was asked repeatedly after the book was put out was, um, you know, how do you identify your hunger? And so because of that, I came up with a 30 day journaling guide that I have on my website. Um, but I have a quick one. I have a quick um, and I call it the five things. So I tell my patients and I love doing this every morning to write five things that you are proud of, five wins, right? Five of the good stuff. And then write five forgives, five things that didn't go well and that you wish would have gone differently. Write them down and let them go. And then write five commits, five things that you're committing to yourself that day. And they don't have to be None of these things have to be grandiose, right? I mean, the fact that you got out of bed and you brushed your teeth and put on your makeup and got ready for the day, even though you were feeling shitty, that's a win. Sometimes that's what it is, right? The thing that I love about this, not only does it do exactly what you said, which is to acknowledge your wins and allow you a moment to celebrate and indulge in it, 
to become aware of the mistakes and give you an opportunity to forgive and to let the damn thing go. It also gives you every day the opportunity to recommit to yourself, right? It's not one and done. And you have the opportunity to renew this practice every day. And that in itself, I think is freeing too, right? It like takes away that pressure of, of, of perfection, for example, because every day you have the opportunity to, you know, do it again. And as I say this, I just want to bring up that there is a concept in um, Buddhism, which is called, and I'm not a Buddhist, by the way, but in my research, I learned this, which is called the beginner's mind. And the beginner's mind is a concept that they employ in meditation in Zen practices and martial arts, which essentially is that every time you do something, approach it with a beginner's mind, approach it as if it's the first time you've ever done it. And that does a few things. Number one, when you approach something with a beginner's mind, it's like there's this childlike excitement there, right? It's new, it's fresh, it's filled with possibilities, filled with opportunity. The other thing that happens is that when you do it with a beginner's mind, you let go of all the past baggage. What I ate or didn't eat yesterday, what I did or didn't do yesterday, all of that goes away because you are taking it as a new and fresh perspective. And that is a very empowering way to walk in the world, right? With this concept of a, of a beginner's mind. So there are a lot of these, you know, mindset shifts that really are quite powerful in um, helping us with habit change and, and, you know, everything that comes from that. Yeah, that that's a big topic that I, I you know, ha forming habits or breaking habits is a, is a complex topic. I just want to say one thing to listeners too, because as I'm listening to you, I'm I'm probably one of the laziest nutrition doctors on the planet. I'm thinking, geez, five things. I don't think I get what I mean. If for for I think even if I could just do one, one win, one forgive, and one commit a day that would be a step in yeah. the right direction. Cause Absolutely. I'm just like five, I'm, I'm picturing myself trying to sit down and come up with five of each of these and, and, and then losing, you know, patience and interest. And I'm, I already failed before I started, but, um, so, I mean, would you say that these things, these hungers have to be, um, realized and conquered essentially for, not conquered because there's no destination, as you said, we're not, we're never there, but that any weight loss program is not going to be successful if they're not at least acknowledged and addressed on some level in your practice. Have you found that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to make these like grandiose statements, but it, it really is true that, um, you know, we can, we can be successful in these efforts short term, um, you know, employ all of our resources, the meds, the drugs, the dietary plans, and it can be effective. But in my experience, if the, the hunger is not addressed, ultimately, one way or the other, it undermines us. Um, and, and by the way, also gets in the way of a fulfilling life, right? If there's something that you need, 
um, belonging, connection, uh, ritual, um, autonomy. That was a big one for me that I talked about that, that didn't, you know, not all of my stories necessarily related to food, um, but I had the hunger when I was a young medical director at a very prominent hospital with all the, you know, the labels and the accolades and the bells and whistles, but I hungered for that autonomy to do what I felt I could do in the world, to be creative, to be fulfilled. So, so yes, these hungers not only are important for weight loss, which is really just the, the symptom, right, or the side effect, but is really important, I think, to, to living life in a wholehearted and fulfilling way. And that's the approach I would take, because when you think about it in that way, the weight becomes such a superficial, you know, side point. However, um, I find that when people really do address the hunger, the weight piece just kind of falls into place um, without all this effort, like how many grams of this and how many grams of that and let's pee on the, peto, uh, the keto stick and see if we're in ketosis. I mean, Christ, we don't need to make it so difficult. Um, and when we do address that true hunger, that kind of struggle melts away. Yeah, it's 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 a really interesting way of of looking at weight management. And I think it's and I think it it ties in really well with what's happening with society, which is being more open to mental health and the component of that. I mean, it, I was thinking as I was reading through this, I was thinking, you know, because I don't think all of my patients have an unmet hunger. I mean, some of them just honestly don't know how to eat or make poor choices and or have busy lifestyles, but maybe that's hunger for more time to to, you know, cook. I I, I don't know, but can I dial into that for a second? Yeah. That's so common. Like what is the number one barrier that everyone has? Yeah. Um, that's time. Absolutely, right? Yeah. We don't have time to cook, we don't have time to exercise, we don't have time to get enough sleep. But what is that really? Let's think about that. Okay. Because it, as you're telling me, you don't have, let's just use you as an example. Sure. You don't have time for anything. Okay. You're in the middle of a podcast. You have patience to see um, the phone rings and your son forgot his lunch. He left it on the kitchen counter. Wow. Who has time all of a sudden to get up and drive that lunch bag to the school? Right. So, I mean, I don't want to be too, um, you know, head in the sky and say, yes, we don't have responsibilities, etc. But the reality is that when push comes to shove, we put time for what we prioritize. Right. And then we set the appropriate boundaries for that. Right. Like if our husband says, hey, absolutely no work calls during dinner, that's my hard stop, then we're not going to take work calls during dinner. So Time, what I say in the book, uh, in the chapter, Hungry for Boundaries, time does not exist. Time is created for the things which we value. When we value ourselves, when we see ourselves as a priority, we set the boundaries necessary in order to 
make time to do the things that serve us. So I'm going to push back on that a little bit on, on the thing that, on the concept that, that it's just a, um, it's just a very uh, concrete absence of time and there isn't a hunger there. I actually do think that there is. And many of us value our parents, our children, our bosses, and our work more than we value ourselves. And that's where the issue lies. No, I agree with you. I think you, especially when it comes to me, I make time for what's important to me. Um, exercising is very important to me. Um, it's funny though, eating healthy and delicious foods are very important to me, but I really do not enjoy cooking. So what about, what if there's just things that don't connect like the hung. I, I don't know. I don't know what I'm saying exactly, but, and it's it just to be very transparent with listeners, you know, because you were very open in your chapter about going for sourdough bread and wine in the pandemic. And um, for me, I took the opposite approach. I, I was probably one of the few people who lost weight during the pandemic because I got crazy and doubled down on exercise because it made me happy, happy. But then I started drinking too much alcohol in lieu of eating a lot of the time. And unfortunately, I've still maintained that behavior. So as I'm reading, uh, you know, some of your insight, for me, it's, it's, it's not hungry, it's thirsty. <laughs> no, but, and I'm, I'm wondering, you know, it just, I, I do, I think, again, I want to reinforce to people how important I think this is to read, even if you're not trying to lose weight, because I think this is about being more self-actualized, more self-accepting and, and being, I know I don't want to be too pie in the sky either. Cause that's not me, but like being more at peace with yourself and your choices and, you know, um, you know, moving forward. But we, you know, we, we only have a few more minutes, but I want to go into kind of a, a few more, like a few other ways, you know, that, cause there's just so much, I mean, you know, hungry to be valued. That's definitely one for me, hungry to greed, uh, grieve, <laughs> also greed. Um, just as we, as we wrap up, just, just kind of a few more things and maybe some inspiring stories of, of patients who, who managed to uh, not conquer because, uh, but, but be at peace with or find some sort of way of managing their hunger beyond just self-medicating with food, which is what I think a lot of people did for, with COVID. And you talk about that too. You talk about yeah. the and idea of comfort food. Alcohol. I talk about the alcohol piece too. Um, that is one of the chapters as well, talking about the alcohol. And what is it that we're trying to soothe there when we double down on the good things, you know, quote, good things on the exercise when it's hyper-exercising or when we're workaholicking there is something that that comes about that seeks to be soothed there. Um, but you know, one of the other ones that comes to mind, and, and again, I feel like there's so many of these are applicable because again, what made it into the book was what made it into my office over and over again. Um, but another another barrier I see quite frequently is um, is labeling you know, how we label ourselves. And that came about in this, the chapter, Hungry for Imagination. It was a patient who I had, and these, 
these patients, they're all based on real people, but of course the girls become guys, the guys become girls. And, and sometimes the stories are so similar that in my own mind, I can't tease out the two patients. They morph into the, into one, but this person was younger, um, but in her young life had already done so much, um, had been sent to fat camp, quote, fat camp by her parents when she was nine years old, Mm. had been given appetite suppressants by her mother's doctor when she was 11. I mean, sheesh, let's talk about that. Had been to Weight Watchers, had um, ultimately had bariatric surgery, had lost and regained 100 pounds three times in her life and was in her early 20s. And what it came down to in the end was um, one of the things we spoke about was, you know, my mom's obese and diabetic, my dad's obese, my brothers, my grandparents, like this is my fate, right? Like I'm going to be obese and, and everyone around me is, and it's genetic. And, and so there, there was this level of kind of, um, you know, throw your hands up in the air. And so you and I know, Melina, that there are genetics behind obesity, but in fact, they haven't found strong genes for, quote, general obesity. And I know this word, people don't like the word obesity, but it's basically just a certain degree of excess weight, excess weight, right? If people are about 30 pounds overweight, it goes into this classification of obesity. But we haven't found the genes that we can map to say, oh, um, you and your mom and your sister all have this gene and all are gonna be 30 pounds overweight. The genes that we have found for excess weight are really for very rare syndromes and syndromic disorders that most of us don't have. They've done studies to show that, you know, the same genetics in different environments actually grow up to have very different weights. So there's the famous Pima Indians we all learn about in medical school. A group of them stayed in Mexico, a group of them went to Arizona, exact same genetics. The ones who stayed in Mexico and maintained that lifestyle um, stayed lean. The ones that moved to Arizona and adopted an American lifestyle became obese and diabetic. So so environment trumps genetics, but there's we can go even a step further. And that next step is that mindset trumps both genetics and environment. And I just, I know we don't have a ton of time, but I have to share this medical study, this unbelievable and has been replicated. They took a group of people, divided them into two drew blood from both of them and put them on a uh, treadmill and did a functional lung capacity test. This is very concrete numbers, right? How much lung capacity you have, the machine spits out a number. Then they told group A, guess what? When we drew your blood, we found that you have this athletic gene. Yay, you. And then told group B, So sorry, you actually did not have this athletic gene. Put these guys back on the treadmill and show that the people who believed that they had this bogus athletic gene actually had higher functional capacity on retesting than the people who were told that they didn't. I mean, that is profoundly um, important in my mind. Just merely thinking that you're athletic actually makes you more athletic. So I wanna just give a shout out to all the people out there who say, 
I'm not a runner. I'm not a writer. I'm not a, you know, all these labels, they don't even have to do with our weight, right? All these ways in which we are limiting ourselves and putting ourselves in a box and playing small because of how we've labeled ourselves. What I say is um, dare to imagine as the chapter says that this patient of mine was hungry for imagination the ability to imagine that she could be something different than her mother and her father and her grandmother. And somehow, Melina, this landed. She's been with me for over five years. She's kept off 130 pounds. So there are nuggets, I think, that really are actionable and practical. Doesn't mean that it's easy, nothing ever is. Um, but I do feel that this book offers a gateway to opening up to these questions that are so profoundly important, not only to our, our weight, but to our emotional, uh, spiritual, and mental well-being. Yeah, no, I, I think that's amazing. I, I, uh, the power of mindset is 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 truly is truly extraordinary and you can you can almost sense it too when when you're with a patient who's committed to that direction I don't know one more thing I I thought was really interesting I just wanted to ask you before we wrap up because you you mentioned uh, about you know you share a lot of personal stories in the book but you mentioned a few times that in your practice you hold back. I really, I, I do the opposite. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, I think there's probably pros and cons to both, but I do, I probably overshare at times because, and then maybe this is my hunger. I'm, I'm hungry for a connection with Mm -hmm. the patient because I know that that's what it, takes, but maybe that's kind of me projecting because that's really, they need a connection with me. It doesn't need to be me forcing it on them. And I think you mentioned that in your chapter, Hungry for Perfection. So, um, but it's, uh, this has been uh, even the, you know, I haven't read the entire book, but I, I think this is, should be mandatory reading for everybody. This is, this is not this is not a, a, a weight loss book. This is, you know, uh, I mean, it, you know, there's, it's very philosophical. I, I was really, I, I give you tremendous kudos for going this direction, and I think it's extraordinary. And I, I really, um, I'm looking forward to reading the rest of it. And um, but again, so let's let's wrap up, you know, with again as much practical advice. I I love the three day. Uh, 30 day journaling. I think that's really wonderful. And it, and it takes uh, what I, what I do and, and elevates it to, well, it, it just, it just, even just changing the language, I think is important for how you view it. So, you know, I challenge listeners to do that. What, what is, what is your website where they can go and, and learn the 30 day 
journaling yes, challenge? So, uh, DrAdrianUdeem.com. It's kind of a mouthful, but DrAdrianUdeem.com, and maybe you can, you know, you'll put it in the show notes. But, yes, of course. Um, there is, uh, there is the, the book can be found there. It can also be found on Amazon, of course. Um, the 30 day journaling guide can be found there. Um, my own podcast, Health Bite, which is short, actionable bites, uh, similar in concept to yours, Melina, can be found there. Um, and I would say that, you know, the, the, the tip that I would give, I think, for people who are like, okay, now what? Um, the resources on the website, I think, are very helpful. But, you know, these are like, um, these kinds of questions take time and contemplation. And um, we need to give ourselves that space. Um, and so I, I always recommend one of the pillars that I recommend to my patients, you know, there's diet, movement, um, sleep, you know, I have these pillars of advice. One of them is a, is a meditative practice or a mindful practice. Doesn't have to be meditation, but something meditative, for me, it's journaling, right? I write every single day of my life I have since I was six years old. That is very therapeutic. Maybe it's a breathing practice. Maybe it's walking or hiking or, you know, being by the ocean. Um, coloring. There's data about coloring that I share in the book. I would just start with something that just gives you time and allows your brain to just kind of be frivolous and see what comes because I do believe that we all inherently know what's right or wrong. We can feel, you know, that discomfort bubbling up when something doesn't sit well or when we're longing for something. We actually have visceral reactions to things. That is our intuition trying to say woohoo. And so, um, but we don't, we can't hear that intuition if we're so busy, you know, doing and, and, and so I would recommend just give yourself some time every day, some space doing something that allows, allows you to reconnect with that, with that intuitive voice, because I believe that people inherently have what they need. Um, and I hope that, you know, these resources can just guide them. Yeah, no, I think that's, um, I think it's essential, regardless of what happens with the scale. I think it's going to, you know, I, uh, give you definitely more peace. It's, uh, I'll have to think about what I, what I mean, for me, exercise is where I can kind of phase out, although then, um, but I do like coloring. <laughs> I must admit, it's, it's kind of a fun thing. I only do it when I'm on vacation, which is the tragedy of it. I should implement it. I mean, even if it's five minutes a day. So again, to be practical, you know, doing something mindful and even daily writing down a win, a forgive and a commit, I think would be a tremendous step in the right direction. So thank you, you for that, that homework assignment. I'm going to hold you to that. Okay. We're, you're going to check in next month. Okay. okay. So, so Dr. Molina has agreed on the podcast. She is going to do one win, forgive and commit every day for the next 30 days. And she's going to sit down five minutes to color. To color every day. It. Okay. I will. And I will even, I will even go one step further. And if you follow me on Instagram at Dr. Molina, I will share some of my coloring 
and some of my journaling. Maybe not, maybe not all of it, because some of it may be private, but I will I will share as much as I can. Um, and I'll repost. So oh my! Me on oh that. my God! Yeah, this Dr. this Molina's uh, coloring, just your coloring, just my coloring. Okay. Yeah. It, it, can make, it can be like a, a piece as I go along. So I can see the progress every day. I can do the fast forward. But anyways, Adrian, this has been a, even more extraordinary than I imagined. I've known you for quite a long time and had a tremendous amount of respect for you as a practitioner. Um, but this really gives a new depth to, um, and, and, and I'm going to even start by, you know, rather than being a little jealous at your wisdom and insight, I'm going to flip it around and, and be inspired to challenge myself to do this more with patients because I think it's it's everything. I mean, the science is cool and, you know, you and I both love that and love learning about it at the meetings, but this is just so much more essential and even how I want to raise my children, you know, what, how I want them to go through life because let's face it, the world is not an easy place. And, and I think these exercises translate into everything. So again, the book is hungry for more stories in science to inspire weight loss from the inside out. And I would again say it's far beyond just weight loss. I think, you know, being kind of at peace and self-actualized. And Dr. Adrian Udim, the website and Instagram, you do a lot of inspirational posts on Instagram. I love seeing those. So thank, thank you. you again for your time. We're really grateful. And I think uh, anybody who's listening is can only benefit from this. So thank you for joining me today. It was a lot of fun. Thanks so much. You've been listening to Practically Healthy by Dr. Melina. Please subscribe, like us, share us, and you know what? Let me know. I'm curious if you were moved by this episode. I'd love to know what your mindful practice is. So uh, for me, it's going to be coloring. What is it for you? Message me on Instagram, find me on Facebook, wherever. I'm, one of my things that I'm trying to do is as much social media. So if I don't respond right away, I'm sorry. But um, again, thank you and uh, have a healthy day.